Good morning, everybody. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. That's a little hot, right? A little hot. It's all good. Uh, two pieces of news uh, in addition to everything else that was said before we get to the sermon. Um, yeah, this was Amy's uh, last morning as Fresh Shepherd. Thank you for doing February, babe. And um, we also uh, are in need of someone to uh, be our Fresh Shepherd for the month of March. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, you can contact me in uh, maybe the early part of the week. And um, if I don't hear from anybody, you'll hear from me uh, towards the end of the week. <laughs> Uh, the other thing to mention is that, um, so last week, uh, our elder Kevin Jones, our lead elder Kevin Jones, made the announcement that Mary Poling has been uh, discerning a call uh, to serve on our elder board, and um, as I mentioned in the email that I sent out earlier this week, we're just thrilled about that, that is wonderful news. Um, however, we may have jumped the gun just a little bit last week. It's always been New Hope's policy to offer before the congregation a a time period, an opportunity of about two weeks uh, where we can, um, you know, kind of pray over this as a body. And if anyone has any reason uh, why um, this would uh, not be something that Mary should be uh, called to do, then, then we invite you to come forward uh, with those concerns. Um, and in about two weeks, we'll uh, only then make her an official part of our elder team. The other thing that kind of plays into that is, of course, um, Jason Poling has uh, served as an elder uh, since New Hope's inception and uh, has recently felt a call to step down uh, as, as from an elder position. Jason is our pastor emeritus, and we're very grateful to have him still around and still serving us and being a counselor to the elders. He'll probably still come to elder meetings occasionally when he is available, um, but in regards to an official capacity as, uh, as elder, um, he's feeling called, and the elders agree that it's, uh, it's right in time for for him to step down in that official role. So just wanted to clarify that. So we have two weeks to kind of wrestle through that as a body, and that's where we're going um, from this point on. Um, on the cover of your bulletin is a picture of a table that is set for a wedding feast. There is a sense in which the event pictured, it's a holy day, right? It's a set-apart day. There is a sense in which it could be described as a solemn event, um, sacred, unlike any other day. It's a day to be remembered because that day will matter for the rest of eternity. It was that day when two people became one, and it was marked as precious by those who loved them. On the other hand, you can imagine that as important and precious as that day would be, it's also a day, appropriately, for raucous celebration. It's a day full of abundant joy and feasting, and should by all rights get a little rowdy. This surely is a dinner where everyone's plate is full and the drinks are flowing. It might even be the kind of party where if you passed by, someone might shout at you, come on, come on inside, grab a drink, make yourself a plate, because we're celebrating something big here. We're celebrating this new thing here. I've had the honor of performing a, a few weddings. I got to officiate my, my own brother's wedding, which was pretty cool, and uh, the wedding of a co-worker. 
And one of my favorite wedding meals, though, was uh, Keith and Emily Hickox, who uh, held their wedding at Ruth Chris Steakhouse. <laughs> that, was, that was a good meal, one for the book. Weddings are about the coming together of two people, each with a story, each with their own family, each with their own testimony of how God had gotten them to that point. But when they get to the author, altar and they make their vows before God and others and their pronounced husband and wife, they are now one family that's something brand new. I had the honor of visiting Rich and, and Tracy Wetkamp at the, at the hospital on Thursday. They had just welcomed their son, Oliver Joseph, into the world. For this family, it was a continuation of that new thing that had begun on their wedding day. Sure, Oliver's DNA will contain traits of his ancestors, but his unique personality is going to be like this combination of his parents' stories into something that's new and exciting. May his home be one of joy and abundance and remarkable love. And one day when Oliver grows up and starts his family, Rich and Tracy's life will enter yet another chapter of a book that started on their wedding day. In Mark's gospel is a story of a time when Jesus was approached by some folks who were curious why he and his disciples, they, they weren't acting like others um, in the Judaism of the day. Starting in, in verse 18 in chapter 2 of Mark, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, a few comments on fasting before we move on. First, fasting was not unique to the Abrahamic religions. There are references to fasting from the likes of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, as well as the cultures of the ancient East. Humanity has somehow picked up on this idea that going without food for a time can, can be a time of serious reflection, a time of discernment. It, it can create an, an alternate rhythm that is outside the typical rhythm of your life. And it can be delightfully beneficial. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was known to have fasted as much as possible during cases because digestion was a a waste of time and energy that could otherwise have been sent solving the problem at hand. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, which every Christian should have on their shelf, Richard Foster speaks about how fasting can reveal things which control us. He says, we cover up what is inside us with, with food and, and other good things, but, but, fasting these thi but in fasting, these things, they surface. If pride controls us, it'll be revealed almost immediately. David writes, I humbled my soul with fasting, Psalm 69. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they're within us, they're going to surface during fasting. Fasting is a good thing that can be especially helpful at reminding us that we don't live by bread alone. I can also, of course, it can also, be, of course, be done for the wrong reasons. It, it can be done in order that we're able to show others how pious we are. In the sacrificial or the satirically immortal words of the philosopher Weird Al Yankovic, "Think you're really righteous? Think you're pure in heart? Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art." 
in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, And whenever you fast, don't look uh, dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father, who, who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. I tell you, it is not every church that quotes Weird Al and Jesus in the same paragraphs. You all have something special here. It's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't say, you know, if you get around to fasting. Or, you know, if fasting happens to fit within your particular faith paradigm. He says, when you fast. And he's saying, and in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, with which um, my New Testament professor described as Jesus' speech, describing a whole new way of being human. The indisputable implication here is that some flavor of fasting is to be a part of what it means to be a Christ follower. Some, some choose to, to utilize the church calendar. And, and give up something for Lent. And, and that's a good thing. But of course it should be done for the right reasons. With God and nothing else at the center. Biblically speaking, fasting accompanies mourning and grief. Petitions of aid. Preface of battle. Repentance. Acts of piety. And the pursuit of wisdom. But this passage is not about fasting. Jesus was asked why he and his disciples aren't fasting. Even though the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John evidently were. The Pharisees typically fasted two days a week. Uh, a tradition mandated certain days of, the, of fasting, such as uh, the Day of Atonement. Um, so if it's part of a of Jewish tradition, um, it's, a, it's a good thing. If, if that's the case, then why isn't Jesus taking, a part of, taking part of it? He uses several analogies, and I think we'll find um, all of which we could say are maybe more than metaphors, meaning that, yes, we'll see him reference certain things, but these things aren't kind of just throwaway things that are simply designed to answer the question at hand. Oftentimes, when Jesus uses analogies, he's eliciting images and actions that actually have far deeper meaning. Jesus says to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And if you're anything like me, you're right now wondering, wait, is the bridegroom the bride or the groom? I always forget that. The bridegroom is the groom, and, and, and Jesus is, of course, he's referring to himself as such. In our day, some have criticized the extravagance of wedding for being, weddings for being too much about the day and not focused enough on the marriage. And I think there's truth in that criticism, but it's important for us to remember that in Jesus' day, weddings were, were week-long affairs that were jam-packed full of, of feasting and drinking. No one would have wanted to have been involved in a fast during a wedding. Like, no one would have wanted to be involved in a fast when they walk into a room and it's set up like the image on the front of your bulletin. I love how Dan Broadwater put it on Wednesday night in our Bible study. He said, why weren't Jesus and his disciples fasting? Because the proper response to being in the presence of Jesus is joy. Sure, there are to be seasons of fasting. And if you're called to a life defined by the resurrection, then we must also remember 
that there can be no resurrection without first death. There's no Easter without a Good Friday. Jesus does say, he continues, he says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they, meaning his disciples, then and now, will fast on that day. There is no empty tomb without the cross. Kneeling at the cross, we are called to the confession of our sins. We're called to put to death those things that are getting in the way of the joy that we have in Christ. Seasons of fasting will help us focus on the true source of that life. That's why it makes sense for us to weed that garden. But make no mistake, the life that we're called into is a life of joy. Jesus tells us that he's come to offer life and life to the fullest. Many in recent years have called out the church for being a place that is so focused on sin that we seem to to lose the idea that we are a people of abundant celebration, the the sort of celebration that you'd find at a wedding. We are a people of uh, resurrection. Jesus took this, uh, Jason took this idea and ran with it a few years ago. Uh, when we celebrated communion as a church with wedding cake and champagne. Remember that? He even had a a recently married bride and groom serve the elements. The imagery of a wedding is not only found in the words of Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was clear that the the groom was God and the bride was Israel. The problem was Israel was wayward, right? It was a wayward love, rebellious and unfaithful, running off with strangers. God tells his people through the prophet Hosea, who was called by God to marry a prostitute, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to um, Jeremiah chapter 31. This kind of uh, husband and wife analogy or language continues here with Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So for Jesus to not only use the wedding analogy, but imply that he himself was the groom has powerful implications. Remember, we we already have seen a few glimpses of the incarnation that Jesus was God made man. He he spoke in the synagogue as, as one who had authority. He healed the sick as one who had authority over the laws of nature. And then in last week's passage, he forgives a man his sins. He's questioned on this by religious leaders who say, Jesus, come on, you know that only God can forgive sins, right? 
And then to show them that he does indeed have the authority to forgive sin, he then heals a man with leprosy. And now he's using this wedding analogy and referring to himself as the groom. And it's like he's saying, don't you guys see what's going on here? Something incredible is happening. It's happening right in front of you. Don't you have this eyes to see? Or are you, are you too blinded by your own traditions? And of course, the wedding guests don't fast when the groom is with them. This is, a, this is anticipatory of where this whole thing is going. One of the last images we receive in the Bible is the marriage of heaven and earth. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and he will be his people um, He will be with his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. It's that kind of wedding that Jesus is talking about. In fact, I I believe that is the wedding that Jesus is talking about. It's a more than metaphor. But the funny thing is that Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He goes on with at least two other analogies that help us see that what he is doing is the start of something brand new. He he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloth, on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch will pull away from it and the new from the old and just a worse tear is made. You can't patch up an old piece of cloth with a new one because as the, the, old, the new one ages, it shrinks and makes the tear even worse. So Jesus' point there is that you can't take the new and force it into the old structures because the old structures can't bear it. These traditions, these days of fasting, these old ways of thinking about your relationship with God, they're, they're, they're filled with, with something that's not fulfilled because the relationship with me is at the center, Jesus said. The thing that I'm doing here, Jesus says, is, a, is brand new. And if you're my disciple, that means that I'm offering you a fresh start. The thing is, Jesus doesn't leave it at that either because it may be possible for them to hear those words, that analogy, and then assume that, well, the best thing that we can do if you have a tear in your old pants is, well, simply patch it up with an old piece of cloth no that's not going to do jesus says no one puts new wine into old wine skins otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and so are the skins but one puts new wine into fresh wine skins Uh, again this was an analogy that they would have understood wine was stored in goat skins in the ancient world after After it was stored, it would ferment and it would emit gases that would expand and stretch the skin. New wine should be put in new wine skins so that that skin, those skins, could handle the expansion. His audience would have understood that it would have been foolish to put new wine into old wine skins. If you did that, it would expand beyond the point of bursting and the wine skin, not to mention the wine, would be lost. 
You see, this new thing that God is doing through Jesus wasn't something that was just going to nicely fit within whatever traditions the Pharisees or even the disciples of, of John the Baptist had come up with. Jesus was the master to follow. The practice of fasting may be a good thing, but, but from now on it was going to have to be done in light of the new thing that God was doing through Jesus. The actions of Jesus and his followers suited the news of the kingdom of God and suited the news that the, that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the call there is to repent. The call is to seek and, and follow the path. The call is to live a life so defined by the love and mercy of Christ that other people see it and they want to come to the wedding. The appropriate response to that sort of, of new creation is abundant joy. And our church, our, our traditions, our worship should reflect that kind of joy. Even when we refrain from it for a season like, like we're doing during Lent right now. We do so with one eye on the fact that Easter is coming. Ultimately, Jesus fulfills the previous covenant. He starts something new. Jesus was how God fulfilled his covenant promises to, to Abraham and Moses and David. So it makes sense that there is a taste of what came before. After all, it was Israel's Messiah that was crucified on the cross. And the early church would justifiably have to, to wrestle through what it meant to be a Jewish follower of Jesus. But, but the gospel Jesus was declaring was a new covenant that would ultimately be declared to all people, to people from all walks of life. It, it's that new thing that we're called into this morning. It's that new, abundant, joy-filled feast that, that, that God's saying, come on in. Over the centuries, the church has been in a discussion of old versus new and ancient versus modern and modern versus postmodern and all of that. And those are probably false competitions because they're tensions to manage, not problems to solve. Each generation has not only the opportunity but the responsibility to wrestle with the truth of the gospel and then present it in a way that is real for that time. In each era of history, we have taken things that have previously been and applied them to the new thing that the church is doing and the new work that God is doing for that current generation and for the generation that's to come. In our day, the church faces a challenge of considering what steps we need to take to reach that next generation. It begs us to consider what steps we're taking to reach 18 to 35-year-olds in our church, in New Hope Community Church. One of the things we do around here is intentionally place students in positions of leadership, like uh, Andrew West, who are working our soundboard this morning. Not because we think it's cute, or because it's good to get the young people involved, or even because it gives adults an excuse to not serve. We do it because we want to clearly communicate to the next generation that this is their church as much as it's anybody else's. It should reflect their creativity and their convictions. This new thing that Jesus began 2,000 years ago is offered to each and every one of us today. We are welcomed into, into that new life. 
Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. So here we sit at the wedding feast of God's abundance, and there's joy. One of my questions this morning is, what steps are we taking to communicate that gospel message to the next generation? And for some, perhaps you need to be reminded that God can still do fresh things. He can still do a fresh work in your life, whether you're nine or 90. It's that spirit we continue our our book of uh, Mark next week, but for now we pray. Father, thank you for this text, for this story, for these images that are things that we wrestle with. They're not things that we immediately say, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's what the answer is. We need to wrestle with it. We wrestle with it together. That's why we have uh, house churches and we have a cup of coffee with a friend and we, we think about these words that come from you, that are inspired by you and we shape our life and our church and our body and our community around us. Use these words to guide us. Use... Um, the, your Holy Spirit to, to show us the way as we seek your kingdom, as we seek to find out what is the best way for us to embrace this new thing that you've done in the world, this new thing that you've done for the world, this new thing that you're doing in us, and also, God, help us through us. Father, I just pray that you would be that, uh, would whisper the thing that that, that we need to hear. Just whisper it in our ear or shout it loud. Shout it so that we can hear it and follow your path more closely. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray.